out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That word great is uh, megas, which we get our word mega. It's, it's good news of mega joy. That will be for all the people, not just some of them, not a select few, but all the people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared to the angels with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. Inside your bulletin, there are some message notes that if you uh, are a guest with us for the first time here this morning, we'll welcome you. Thank you for being here. And there's a connection card that you could also fill out and uh, drop that in one of the baskets on your way out this morning, and there's a gift for you. We have talked about the joy. What does it mean to choose joy? The Bible says this is great news, uh, that the angels are telling these shepherds of great joy. We have discovered that joy is a choice. That joy is a habit. Joy is a decision. Today we're going to talk about that fact that joy is a gift. Uh, let's admit that um, even as parents, we enjoy giving and receiving gifts at, at Christmas, do we not? How many of you like to get gifts, receive gifts? Yeah, we all do. Um, so, you know, when you're young, um, it's a little different scenario because when you're young, um, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like... Um, Man, it's all about the gifts, right? Christmas is really about receiving the gifts. And uh, we were told uh, as children, at least I was growing up, you know, that Santa has his naughty and nice list. And how many gifts you receive uh, is based upon whether you've been naughty or nice. How many of your parents told you that myth? And you believed it, right? So we believed it. And uh, so, you know, as a child, then you wanted to kind of, like, I had four sisters, so I wanted to kind of compare, right? So when we get our gifts, how many of you were a counter? Like, everybody had to have the same number of gifts, right? It's like, if I got five gifts, they better not get six or seven, or there's going to be trouble, right? Or maybe I was on the naughty list. I don't know. So I, I decided one year I was going to try to capture Santa in, in the, the action of actually bringing the gifts. And uh, we lived in a duplex. And um, in the duplex, which was built back in like the late 50s, so you had a furnace and there were registers on the first floor, but heat rises. So in order to warm up your upstairs, they would just cut registers in the, in the floor that went all the way through the ceiling. So you could look down the register and see the room below you, right? So the heat would rise up and heat up the upstairs. So my sister's, their bedroom, the register was like right over the front of our Christmas tree. Like, so I'm going to capture Santa. So I, I strung up these bells, this system like by which if I fell asleep, you know, at least he might hit the bells and ring it and wake me up or whatever. So I had it all set up on Christmas Eve. And, um, yeah, we, we kind of camped out, got, you know, kind of like made a tent over our little thing here because we didn't want anybody to be able to see. And so we camped out that night. We're going we're gonna to capture Santa in, in the action. And uh, needless to say, we fell asleep and it didn't work. Right, so maybe that's how your parents kept you in line. Naughty and nice list. Now, uh, now, and today, uh, people are using like thing called Elf on the Shelf. Um, in my day, we didn't have Elf on the Shelf. We had Belt on the Bed, but that's another story. 
uh, or on the backside. But uh, I, I read about one theory of keeping your kids in line during Christmas, and that is simply this. Just get a bunch of boxes, wrap them up like they're presents, tell them that your kids, that they are presents from you as a parent, put them under the tree, and every time one of them acts up and misbehaves, just pick up the box, their present, and throw it in the fireplace, and that'll take care of it, right? So gifts are very important to us, and oftentimes we, we spend a lot of time perhaps selecting just the right gift for someone because we're trying to express love. Well, when God wanted to, for us to receive a gift, he, he certainly gave the best that he had. In fact, there are three qualities about the gift that God gave to us through his son, Jesus Christ. I want you to take note of, this is on top of your outline. Number one, it is the most expensive gift that you will ever receive. The most expensive gift you will ever receive. It is priceless. Why? Because Jesus had to pay for this gift with his life. And so the express purpose for which Jesus came into the world was God himself took on the form of a human being, took on human flesh, and grew up under the tutelage of his parents. And then God, you know, at that rightful age around 30, 33, God sent Jesus out onto his mission field to be Messiah, that he is the one who's going to be the Savior of the world, as the prophets had foretold. And so Jesus went throughout his you know, three, next three years, um, de demonstrating the fact that, yes, he is he's God in the flesh. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah for Israel, only to end up crucified for the behalf of mankind so that through a relationship with him, we can receive eternal life, right? We can have our sins forgiven. And so all of this is wrapped up in this gift. And so it's a priceless gift because Jesus paid for it with his life. I doubt that there's anyone here who has bought a gift for somebody that you had to pay for with your life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You'll catch on here in a minute. Number two, this gift is going to last forever. This is not a temporary gift. It's not a gift that God gives and then takes away. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you enter into this Connection with God the Father, the creator of the heavens and earth, for all of eternity. It is, it is the gift that will last forever. And, but thirdly, and really what I want to focus on today is that it is the most practical gift that you're, you're ever going to receive. All right. So beyond um, the, the fact that we can have all of our sins forgiven and we can enter into relationship with the God who created us through his son, Jesus Christ... What is so practical about this gift is not that it, it secures our eternal destiny, but it also, listen, we need Jesus every single day of our lives. It's not like, okay, I got Jesus, and, and now I'm just going to like take my life and do with, with it whatever I want, and I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, govern it and control it, and Lord, when I die, you can have me. No, it's, it's like, uh, Jesus, I need you every single day. And I'm going to talk about four reasons why you need him every single day and how practical this gift really is for you. Because we have talked all through this series about things that rob you of joy. Now, remember, joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances being all you know, right, and the stars are all aligned and everything's going in your favor. Joy is much deeper than that. Joy is, is it's more than just a relationship. Joy is a, it is just a profound um, ability to have confidence in God who, who is in control of all things. And, and I put my confidence in this God and my, because God is the one who oversees my life and, and God's the one who wants the best for my life. 
And so no matter what I face, what I experience, whether it be happy or, you know, delightful or painful or everything in between, I, I know that God has my back, that God is deeply involved. And so a lot of times you read the Christmas story and you'll notice there's a lot of fear going on. Everybody's afraid. Every time there is fear going on, what does God promise? God always promises the same thing. He promises his presence, right? Like I am with you and I'm walking with you and I'm taking this journey with you. And so Jesus, when he came, it wasn't about changing people's circumstances. Rome was in control over Israel when Jesus was born. Rome was still in control over Israel when Jesus died. Rome was still in control over Israel after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension. Jesus didn't come to change their circumstances. He came to change them as people. Jesus didn't come into the world just so that, you know, oh, the world's going to be a better place because this world will never be a better place until Jesus comes back and establishes his millennial kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. That's when there will be peace on earth and not until then. But what Jesus wants to do is he wants to enter into the realm of our personal lives. And there are very distinct areas in which he wants to do that so that we have confidence that we can face anything in life when we have Christ. And so, you know, this is this is what this is really goes right back to the heart of the gospel because it goes right back to the Garden of Eden. Right? So what did God do? He created Adam and Eve and put them right in the backyard of Satan's domain in his kingdom. And so as long as they followed God, as long as they listened to him, and, and as, long, as long as they remained under uh, the lordship of the God who walked with them day in and day out, things would be fine. And they, God would expand his kingdom through Adam and Eve as they had children, and it would expand across the face of the earth. But you know what happened, right? So they listened, very they listened to the voice of Satan, and they chose to go in an opposite direction of what God told them to do. It's amazing that paradise was lost because of what they heard and what they did in response to what they heard. And the Bible says that paradise is gained by what we hear and how we respond to what we hear. And so what is it? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So when you came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's because you heard the voice of the Holy Spirit within you and you responded to that call of God to receive Jesus as your Savior. And as a result of that, you became a child of God, right? Paradise lost by what we heard. Paradise regained by what we hear. Now here's the problem is what we hear in our ears and what rolls around in our minds messes with us. You have 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day and most of those thoughts you had today are the same thoughts you had yesterday. There are hundreds of conversations that roll around in your mind, the same conversations that you had yesterday and these conversations evolve around four things in your life. Your sense of insecurity, your fears, your self-condemnation, and discouragement. And so what the evil one does is that, you know, Satan just like messes with our minds, and we're constantly having this battle in our mind, and you never have any more victory in your life until first you've won the battle in your thought processes. This is why God was very careful in the gift that he selected to give us. 
Because Jesus didn't come just to forgive our sins. He also came to enable us to live free from our sin. But as long as those thoughts and those uh, conversations in my mind are not challenged by the truth of God's word because they're always based on lies. They're always based on innuendos. And so if I believe the lies and I live by the lies, it results in you know, calamity in my life. But if I, if I stack the truth up, if I take the truth of God and, and confront the lie and choose to live by God's truth rather than the lies, then I walk in the freedom that Jesus came to secure for me. So let's look at this. Uh, what are the four areas? Why, why is Jesus as our gift so important in our day in and day out life? And here it is. Number one, Jesus is God's gift for your insecurities, for your insecurities. There's a TV show that I watch once in a while. My daughter got me hooked on it a few years back. I don't watch it much, but I do watch usually the first couple sessions called The Voice. How many of you watch The Voice? You know what The Voice is? And so The Voice is a singing competition, and in the beginning of the season, each contestant is singing before four judges. Now, these judges are sitting on these big chairs with high backs on them, but when the contestant comes out, all four of those chairs have their backs to the contestant. So the judges sitting on those chairs cannot visibly see the contestant. They only get to make their judgment as to whether or not they're going to turn that chair around and invite that person to be a part of their team on the basis of their singing ability alone, not on the basis of what they look like or not on the basis of anything that they're wearing, but only on their voice. And so they do. The contestant comes out, they begin singing, and you know, one of the judges spins their chair around, and it kind of like a neon light begins to go off. And, and what that judge is saying to that contestant is, I want you on my team. I, I want you on my team. And it might be that two judges spin their chair around, or all four judges, and then the judges have to start pitching to the contestant as to which one they're going to select to be their coach uh, for that season of The Voice. And it's, it's just a, an incredible thing. And so um, here's the problem. Here's the downside of that. What happens when a singer hits that stage? They begin singing their heart out, and ain't nobody turning their chairs around. You get the message really quick, right? I don't want you. You're not good enough. I don't think you're worthy of me turning this chair around. In fact, you might as well just go home. The best you're ever going to be is a karaoke singer. It's done. It's over. Goodbye. You know how horrible that person feels? You know how insecure they begin to feel about themselves? Like they thought they were a good singer. They thought they were a great singer. Mama told them all their life they were a great singer. You know, it's kind of like people on American Idol. Somebody told them they could sing. They can't sing a note. But they thought they could. But these contestants aren't like that, man. These, people, these are people who can really sing, and, but, but they get the message. Let's translate that into our lives. Because here's what I know about all of us, is that in our minds, we have judges who sit on the seats that we look to for approval in life. We have judges that we put on the seats in our minds that we are looking to in order to gain acceptance. And we're the contestant, and we're in a blind audition, and we're waiting on someone to hit their button. And auditioning our hearts out for the acceptance and the approval of the judges that we have set up in our lives. Now, your panel of judges may vary from somebody else's, but the fact of the matter is, if they do not turn their chair, chair around, uh, 
What do we feel like? We feel like a loser. We feel like a failure. We have thoughts in our minds like, you know, I, I knew I could never live up. I knew I could never measure up. And it might be that for some of you, it's a parent that's on the chair in your mind. Accusations that they made or affirmations they failed to give to you. You've been looking for them all of your life. You've been auditioning for them all of your life, but they've never turned their chair around. And it helps uh, simply just enforce your self-inflicted prison of insecurity. For some of you, it may have been a teacher. It might be a coworker. It might be a trusted friend from high school. And, and you're just thinking, man, if they just turn their chair around, I would feel so in included. I would feel, you know, if they just compliment you, if they just notice you, if they would just praise you in some way, it would affirm who you are. But, but they don't turn their chair around. And, and so now it just heightens your sense of insecurity. And what's sad about all of these judges that we put on the seats in our minds, that we think that, you know, if they would just affirm, if they would just declare, if they would just, you know, just somehow, some way, my life would be better, it would be more complete, and it would be more fulfilling, and I'd be more contented, is that not one of those judges has a button to push. But here's the good news of the gospel and why God sent Jesus into the world to be your Christmas gift is because, listen, he's the only one who really matters about his opinion of you, and he's already pushed the button, the chair's already turned around, and what God would say to you, listen, the audition is over. I love you. I accept you. I am adored by you. I dance over you, the Old Testament says in, in, uh, in Scripture. But for many of us, we'll spend our entire lives trying to get certain people to affirm us, to accept us, to like us, to want to be with us. You know, you know what it's like when you were in school and everybody was lined up and it's like you got two team captains and they're, okay, everybody start picking somebody out of the line to be on your team and you're the last one. And so what's the thought? Well... I guess I got to take you, right? And sometimes that's what we think about with God. Well, you know what? I know all your faults. I know all your flaws. I know all your failures. I know all the thoughts that rule around in your head. I know all the things that you've ever done. Well, okay. Uh, all right. So you're reaching out to Jesus. Well, I guess I'll have to take you. To give you an example of this is the prophet Jeremiah and Jeremiah is not the bullfrog that the three dog knights uh, sang about. Jeremiah was a literal prophet in the Old Testament, right? And so he was his message was rejected throughout most of his ministry. And he lived in isolation. He suffered persecution. And he saw from an earthly perspective very little what he would have called success in his lifetime, right? He, he constantly is telling, as a spokesman for God, telling people what God told him to tell him with no response, man. They, they, they didn't like the message and they'd throw him into a cistern and they do all kinds of stuff to him. But Jeremiah understood that where his calling came from. So here's what it says in Jeremiah chapter one, verses four and five. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now notice what God said. He knew Jeremiah. He handpicked him. He selected him. When? before he was ever sent out as a prophet of God. In other words, God didn't select Jeremiah and say, now listen, 
Uh, I think you have some potential. How about you go out there and start preaching to my people in Israel, and we'll see how well you live up to what I think you can do. And if you can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you out for more. If you can't, you're done. In other words, Jeremiah, if I turn my chair around, uh, you'll know that you have my affirmation and you have my appreciation for what it is that I've designed you to do. But if my chair doesn't turn around, Jeremiah, uh, go on back home and do whatever it is that you used to be doing. And so before he did anything, before he did anything to merit God's acceptance, God had already hit the button. Now there's a verse I want you to write down on your outline, and I want you to read it very carefully. It is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 4 through 7. Because here's what God says about you. Ephesians 1 chapter... Chapter 1, verse 4, for he chose us in him, that is in Christ, when? Before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace it, that he lavished on all of us with wisdom and understanding. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He is simply reminding us, listen, you do not have to perform for God. God says you have nothing to prove because you have already been approved. When did God select you? When did God choose you? When did God issue his call to you before the foundation of the world. Who knows your flaws? Who knows what, how you have messed up? Who knows what you think about more than God does? No one. But in spite of all that, what the evil, Satan comes against our, our minds and our flesh, and he wants us to get all hung up in our insecurity within ourselves, between ourselves and other people, and our relationship with God. And so Jesus came into the world to be our gift from our Heavenly Father, to say to every single one of us, you have no reason to be insecure in this relationship. I paid for everything that needed to be paid for, so internalize not your defects, don't don't internalize the things that are wrong with you. I see you, and I see what you can be and are going to be, and therefore, I've already turned around the chair. Stop trying to merit. Stop trying to earn my love and acceptance. I did not give it begrudgingly. I did not choose you because I had no other choice. I chose you because I love you. That's a, that's a message. It's the message of Christmas and it's something that we need to hear all the time. Number two, Jesus is your gift in order to face your fears. The fact is fear is both a global and a personal experience that we all have, right? All of us fear hearing a call back from our doctor's office that says, hey, I need to see you personally. You know it's not going to be good news, right? We all fear the word cancer. We all fear different things. You fear getting an email from a very close friend that maybe has some very cutting and critical remarks to say to you. We all fear breakups. We all fear, you know, 
something may happen to our children. And so there are fears that we cannot control, and there are fears that we try to control, but we can't seem to get a grasp. And so fear, left unchecked, does not go away on its own. I want you to understand that. Fear, left unchecked, never goes away on its own. And if we allow fear to drive our lives, if we allow fear to be the, 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 the uh, ultimate um, thing that says, oh, yes, I'll do this, or no, I will not do that, then we, were, we are never going to live out God's full purposes for our lives until we learn how to overcome fear. So there are a lot of things. We fear terrorism. We fear all, all kinds of things on the global network as well as in our personal lives. And so all through the scripture, the Bible says over 365 times, fear not, fear not, fear not, do not be afraid, fear not, don't let fear drive your life. And because little fears cohabitate and combine with forms of, and levels of anxiety and terror that really annihilates our awareness of God's presence in our life over time. So here's what God says as the antidote, 1 John 4, 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, this verse means that God's love turns fear out the doors. It expels it. It drives it out. So my question for you is, what doors remain closed in your life where you have a sign on the outside that says, do not enter because you are afraid of what's on the other side of that door. What is it that God has asked you to do in your life, perhaps, that you are afraid to take that step of faith and do what he asked you to do? A lot of times there are fears that confront us and we might go to the word of God, and God says, here's how to confront this fear. Here's what you need to do. But because of fear, we don't do it. And so we remain hidden behind our doors, and we think to ourselves, well, when the fear goes away, I'll take the first step. I'm just here to say that fear isn't going anywhere. It doesn't just go away on its own. You have to drive it out. And the way you drive it out is that you envelop yourself in God's love. Fear is not dealt with passively. Fear does not evaporate. It must be expelled. In other words, either fear kicks you out, kicks, you kick it out of your heart, or it will keep you out of the places that God has prepared for you because you're refusing to take that step of faith. It'd be like you going to school when you're in elementary school and the bully comes up to you and says, hey, uh, give me your lunch money. Now you're afraid of this individual. So what do you do? You try to avoid that person. But no matter where you go, they seem to show up. And every day, you just keep giving the bully your lunch money. Well, how are you going to stop that process? Because you're afraid of this person. Well, there is some kind of action you're going to have to take in order to um, walk through that doorway of fear. Dale Carnegie wrote this, an action breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, don't sit home and think about it. Go out and get busy. 
I'll give you an example. For example, my wife and I are in, we are in uh, Columbus School of Supernatural Ministry. It's a two-year process. We're about a year into it. And every semester, uh, we have to take what we learn out on the streets. Now, if there's anything that my wife fears, it's being like confrontational, right? Like going out and talking to people that you don't know. So, um, and it's not my favorite thing to do either. So it creates great fear. Well, you can do one of two things. You can either cave to the fear and never go out and talk to anybody, or you can decide, I'm, in spite of my fear, I'm going to take a step of action, and I'm actually going to do something in order to f- kick this fear out of my life. And so that's what we do. We go um, at stores. We've been at Myers. We've been in the ER at uh, Diley Road. We've been at McDonald's. Uh, for the example, we bought $5 gift cards and just went and handed them to people and said, hey, uh, my name's Greg and, and I, I want to bless you this Christmas. Here's a $5 gift card. Is there anything I can pray for you about? And that gets the conversation rolling, right? Some people like, you know, thank you for the card, but no, I don't need any prayer. Some people, you know, they're like, yeah, man, you, uh, I'm so glad you can't believe what's going on in my life. And, and, and you pray for them and it leads to other, you know, further conversation. So the point of the matter is, you know, you have to confront your fears. You don't get stronger in faith by avoiding fear. You get stronger in faith by taking the step necessary to bust through the fear. That's what God wants to do. And so uh, the picture I get in my, my mind is like, like God's love, you know, he, 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 it dries out fear, he says. I, I'm like, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movies Taken, you know, Taken 1, 2, and 3 with Liam Neeson. And like, it's like having Liam Neeson as your dad, you know, and like, the, like Satan tries to take you, and then Liam Neeson talks to you on the phone and says, I have a particular set of skills. Trust me, I will hunt you down, and I will find you. And when I do, right, God's got my back. Why should I be afraid? Because if, if you're going to come against me, you've you got you to gotta walk through my father. And so, you know, it, God says he will always be faithful to his word. So it's decision time. You will either hide in the shadows of your home or you'll respond to the voice of God and his love as it summons you to fight against fear and to press forward into new victories. And so, um, obviously, there are examples of this all through Scripture, but um, I want to give you one. And it, this is, here it is. It's Jesus when he sent his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Jesus, you know, he's in the boat with them. He's asleep on the front of the boat. Storm comes up. Bad storm. Horrible storm. And these guys, like, we're going to die. We're going to die. And, like, Jesus is asleep, and they wake him up. And, and here's the words. They said, Lord, do you not care that we're going to die? We're going to drown out here. And so the Bible says that Jesus stood up in the midst of this storm, and he spoke to the storm. And the, the storm went away. The waves began to calm. The sea was now at perfect peace. And what is very interesting is, is that here the disciples, deathly afraid of the storm, got, Jesus calms the storm. And then the scripture says, now the disciples looked at Jesus and they said, who is this guy? And they were terrified of him. Really? You see, after they saw what Jesus was capable of doing, because 
Jesus' miracles affirm the fact that he had authority over things like storms and wind and sickness and death and recessions and all of the other things we, we tackle in life. And so after they saw who Jesus was, their fear of the storm was replaced with a fear of the Lord. There's only one fear that God says he honors. It's the fear of the Lord. Not that I'm afraid that God's going to do something against me. Not that God's like mad at me and he's going to get back at me. But a fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is simply this. I don't ever want to be outside of the umbrella of the protection of God. Because as long as I remain under that umbrella, you, you've got to go through him to get to me. And so if I'm facing something that's creating great angst of fear within me, um, I don't have to fear because I know whom I'm trusting in. I know whose word I have as promises that I can anchor myself in. So here's three words or three phrases I want you to write down on your outline. And it's simply this, when it comes to fear, what if, what if, that would, and God will. What if, that would, that will, or that would, and God will. For example, whatever fear you're facing, because sometimes we face the fears of what if. Well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if this happens? If I trust God there, and how's that going to work out? And what if it doesn't work out? And what if this? And what if that? And so those fears keep us from ever walking in faith. And Jesus came as our gift so that we would walk in faith because our relationship with Christ is all about a walk of faith, right? God wants to grow us and mature us in our faith. And so let's say, for example, if it's a, it's a car repair bill you get, you know? And so the question is, well, what if I can't afford this? Well, let's just play the worst scenario out in your mind. What if you can't afford it? All right, let's, let's just take the fear on. What if I can't afford this? It's something greater than I anticipated. Well, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, that would what? Well, that would be horrible. That would be very inconvenient. But I know God will take care of me because he's always taken care of me. There's never been a time he hasn't taken care of me. And therefore, I don't have to be afraid. I'll go pick up the car. It might be more than I can afford. That will be a horrible day. That will cost me in my finances. That means I'm going to have to you know, tighten my belt. But God will be faithful to supply what it is I need. Let's take something a lot more horrible than that. What if somebody you love dies? What if it's a spouse who dies? They receive the call. You have cancer. And so the what ifs start in your mind. Well, what, what, if, they, what if they die? What, what's that going to be like? And so that will what? That will be the worst day in my life. That will be a horrible day. But I know that God will be faithful. I know that God will still protect me, that God will still lift up my head high, that God will still restore my joy, that God will still put me back together again, that God will still open up my eyes to opportunities. He will catch me. He will breathe life into me. He will draw me close to him. So here's what happens when you, when you look at fear from that perspective that God will and God always will because he's faithful to his promise through his gift of Jesus Christ, I have really nothing to fear. It might hit me initially and I might ask the question and it might be a horrible thing that I have to face and encounter in life, but in the end, Liam Neeson has stepped on the scene and he's going to take care of me. Number three, 
Jesus is your gift because of self-condemnation. One of the Bible's descriptions of Satan is that he is accuser of God's people who seeks to condemn us, right? Condemnation is always very vague. You're stupid. You're ugly. You'll never amount to anything. No one loves you. Nobody cares about you. They could care less about your opinion. Keep your mouth shut. All of these things that are very vague, and we really have no recourse. But the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, does not condemn us, but brings conviction. Greg, you lied. Your anger got out of control. Greg, you were jealous. Greg, you stole that. Or, you know, very, so why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to confront me so that I can do something about it, right? I can acknowledge it, agree with God, what he is saying about me, confess my sin, and I know that God is faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sin. Why? Because I've been cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who died in my place, the gospel applied to my life, and therefore, I walk away, and I am, I'm free, right? So I don't have to walk around condemning myself. I don't have to walk around trying to do penance for God. I don't have to walk around beating myself up because I know that I've acknowledged this before God, and that's a good thing. But God's, the, the blood of Jesus is constantly cleansing me from all of my sin. Why is this important? Because it's amazing. It's amazing how many of God's people walk through their entire lives with self-condemnation, that you're constantly criticizing yourself. Those, those words that come across the screen of your mind, I'm ugly, I'm horrible, I'll never amount to anything. You know, we did a whole series on the mind on toxic. You gave me lists of the things that roll around in your minds, the conversations that you have with yourself that are so self-condemning. And then you wonder why you can't move forward in life. You wonder why you can't have the freedom that Jesus came to have. And so, uh, you know, you, you, it's more than a temporary feeling that, you know, life sucks. It's a fundamental change in how, in how you see yourself and your outlook on life and your outlook on your relationship and your walk with Christ. That forever changes you. Henry Cloud uses words like personal, permanent, and pervasive. For example, if I say... What's wrong with me? I'm always messing up everything, right? So you make a mistake. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. What is wrong with me? I'm always messing up everything. What's the personal word? Me, right? Permanent, always, pervasive, everything. I, I'm such a, I always, I never. These are words that roll around in your mind that bring condemnation upon yourself, and you live on the basis of those lies that you're being confronted with, and so you can't blame somebody else for it. You have to take responsibility, but here's what God says. God says that Jesus paid for everything through his sacrifice on the cross, right? So the Bible says in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What God is saying in the truth of his word is, listen, you do not have to allow words such as that to rob you of your walk with Christ, your freedom in life. Those are not the words that God uses to describe you. Those are not the way that God, we take those words and those thoughts and we make them a part of our identity. All through the Bible, what God says to us, do not base your 
identity upon what those words are telling you, what Satan is saying to you, what your flesh is saying about yourself. You build your identity on one person and one person alone, and that person is God's gift to you for Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he says about you and what, how he sees you. And so when you do that, man, it's like taking a dagger. It's like what Paul said, you know, when he put on the armor of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, it's like a dagger. You, you like hit Satan in the jugular and you make him pay when he says those condemning phrases. And then you come up and say, well, now, wait a minute, Satan. Uh, God says that he saved me and that he's always saving me. God says that he forgave me and his grace is always cleansing me. God says that he called me and his mercy is always keeping me. God says he rescued my life from the pit and his kindness is crowning me with love and compassion. That is not what the gospel says. So you just rehearse the gospel and you use it like a skilled swordsman in order to put a death blow to Satan and what he is saying, and you base your thoughts on the truth of God's word, not on the lies of your enemy. God gives you that ability to do that because he's indwelt you with his Holy Spirit. Stop living your life based upon your insecurities, your fears, your self-condemnation. That is not what God saved you for. He saved you for something so much greater. And the reason why he can enable you to walk above that is because Jesus is a gift that you receive. Here's the last one. Jesus is God's gift for your discouragement, for your discouragement. Often when God's bringing us to a brink of breakthrough in our lives is when we get the most discouraged. Have you ever noticed that? It's like you've been hoping for something, you've been working towards something, and you're just like right there for the breakthrough, and, and then all of a sudden, it, maybe it doesn't happen, or, or, you know, Satan comes along, and there's words in your mind again, you know, you can't, it will never happen, you're not smart enough, you're not talented enough, it never works out for you, you've tried this before and failed, and so, wow, our minds just defeat us. And we think, you know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I don't even know why I started this. I don't even know why I try anymore. I never see the point in what I'm doing. Do you know the Apostle Paul felt this way? A lot of times. And so um, here's one of them, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. Um, either you can turn there or you can just listen to, to, to me read it, but... 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry it around in our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. You know what Paul is saying, in essence? If God says I can, I can. Regardless of what your mind's telling you. Regardless of what you're thinking. If God says you can, you can. He says, we're, man, we're being persecuted. We're perplexed. You know, we're, we're fighting the good fight. But God says we can, and therefore we believe we can because we have the life of Christ inside of us. It's the enemy's goal 
to talk you out of trusting God's plan for your life at the foundational level. And then it's only a matter of time before he derails you in life. When I was asked once, you know, what's your greatest source? What is the greatest source? Because I, I, I um, mentor some guys who are young pastors. They say, what, what's your greatest source of discouragement in ministry? People? No. Really, it's people. No. It's really an easy answer. It's when you work and you work and you work and you're trying to pour into your, your people and you're teaching them God's word and you're teaching them God's word and you're pouring over, you're preparing messages every week and you keep teaching, you keep equipping and you keep training, but nothing seems to change. In fact, sometimes things get worse and you come to the conclusion, what's the purpose of it all? Do you know you've probably said that to you yourself when you've gone through a very painful event in your life? It's very difficult for people to handle painful events in their lives if they don't see a purpose or a reason for it. I don't understand it. I, can't, I, I have no explanation. I don't know why this is happening. I, I, I don't get it. I tried so hard. I put forth so much effort, but it just never seems to work out. So what's the point? Of trying. You ever been there? What is draining is when we are giving our all and see it seems like we're getting nothing in return. It's easy, very easy to become discouraged in what you're doing. Do you know that um, there's another example of this, and this is found in Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to close out with this um, because I want you to see what happened to John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, he, Elizabeth, she is, you know, six months pregnant ahead of Mary, and uh, she is giving birth to John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, of Jesus. They are cousins. And so um, in, in Matthew 11, uh, now Jesus has been engaged in ministry, and eventually, evidently, John's confidence and whether or not Jesus was the actual Messiah began, began to, to wane. He, he began questioning that. And he, he wasn't sure. I mean, um, understandable. I mean, Jesus is out there now in his, his ministry. He's dazzling the crowds. He's teaching in, by, in ways they've never heard before. He's performing miracles. People are getting you know, healed and the deaf are hearing and the blind are getting their sight back and the demon possessed are being delivered and, and Jesus is just doing all these things. And at this time in Matthew chapter 11, where's John the Baptist? He's sitting in prison on death row. And so here's what he asks in um, chapter 11, verse one. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee when John, heard, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And so he's questioning, why? I mean, I don't think John's discouragement is due to a lack of belief. He was a man of strong conviction, a man of strong faith, I think it's the result of an unmet expectation. 
See, John expected like everyone else that when Messiah came, man, it's judgment time, right? Judgment over Rome, judgment over those who who need God's judgment. And so he talked about like Jesus coming with a winnowing fork and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and, and, and judgment is going to happen. And so John, you know, his, he languished his own uh, judgment efforts against people like uh, the Pharisees, man. He was just like scorched them with, you know, who warned you about the judgment to come? I mean, he was like really harsh on them. And then, then he even scorched the per- one person he shouldn't have scorched was, was King Herod. And King Herod didn't like it. So King Herod puts him in prison. King Herod is going to execute him. Remember, we talked about King Herod. King Herod thought nothing about executing his own family members, let alone John the Baptist. He wasn't scared of John the Baptist. So here he is sitting in prison on death row, And Jesus isn't doing any scorching. In other words, Jesus has spent himself uh, on the work, doing the work of the Lord, but from John's vantage, it wasn't working. He's not out there judging people. He's not out there talking about God's condemnation coming down upon, you know, Rome. And he's not talking about overtaking Rome. And he's not talking about rising up as a zealot and he's going to amass his own army and they're going to march against the Roman Empire. He's not doing any of those things. And so John in his mind is thinking, well, I don't understand what's going on. Are you really the one? Or or should we be looking for somebody else? And so here's what Jesus says to John's disciples. He says in verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see, that the blind receive sight and the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cured and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on my account. In other words, he's quoting out of Isaiah 61, but he leaves off a little section about, and he'll set the prisoners free. Right? So John's going to get the message, hey, I am Messiah, because all the prophets talked about what the Messiah had the capability of doing, and he's doing all those things. He is fulfilling to the letter Isaiah chapter 61. However, John's disappointed expectations gave birth to discouragement Jesus sends back a message, but listen, watch very carefully what Jesus does. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. In other words, take that message back to John. They're leaving. They're out of earshot. So Jesus says this about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, I will send my messengers ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not... There there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. You see what Jesus says? He says to the crowd, hey, 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 John was a rock star in my kingdom. Nobody greater than him. Why didn't Jesus send that message back to John? 
Don't you think John could have used a little encouragement? Instead, he sends back a message, I'm Messiah, and you ain't getting out of prison. Herod's going to have his way. Why didn't he tell him? Hey, John, it's not going to end like you thought it would, but I want you to know, man, you did everything God asked you to do to the nth degree. Man, in my eyes, there is no one greater than you. Why doesn't he send that message? I believe it's because Jesus did not want him to put his faith and trust in someone else's estimation of him or his, their affirmation of him. I believe that what Jesus was saying is, listen, John, I don't want you trusting in what you've done. I want you trusting in me as Messiah. But behind John's back, Jesus says, Man, you have done better than you think you've done. You hit it out of the park. I say that to say this. In the midst of your discouragement, one of the reasons why you get discouraged is because you have an expectation. Something or someone does not live up to your expectation. There is a gap, and you're disappointed with that person or that event, and that disappointment grows into discouragement. And what God is saying is this, you're going to experience discouraging times in your life, but I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to give in. I don't want you to stop. I don't want you to turn around because there one day you're going to find out that you are doing a whole lot better than you thought you were doing. You are doing exactly what I called you to do. You may not receive the affirmation, it may not look like things are working out. It might look like you've spent your time and you're wondering, what, what's the point? Why am I even doing this? It doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. Therefore, I'm just going to give up, throw in the towel, and walk away. No, you just keep going because I'm telling you what you are doing is having a difference in the kingdom of God. Jesus is our gift to say to us, do not allow Satan to discourage you to the point of giving up and walking away. Remember, the voice that you believe in your head will determine the future experiences that you have. Every time you and I refuse to believe the evil one and believe God's truth, we are putting into the practice the results of what? Choosing gratitude and or, Growing in gratitude and choosing joy, which have been the last two series we've done. I've selected these series purposefully. What does the Bible say? Listen, be grateful in all things, in everything. This is God's will. Paul said, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. I'm simply saying the way that you pay Satan back for discouraging you, for talking down about you, for putting doubts in your head and putting fears in your life and trying to build you on a life of insecurity rather than on the identity of Christ and what God's doing in you and he's going to do through you and will continue to do in and through you until you draw your last breath on this earth. When you praise God, when you give God great gratitude in the midst of those most discouraging times, you are putting a death blow to the evil one. He has nothing to fight against when that happens.
And that's why God gave to us the most important gift we could ever receive. So in the midst of your insecurities, fears, self-condemnation, and discouragement, why not pick up the sword of the Spirit and just like give him a death blow? So I conclude with this story. There was an elderly woman, probably in her 80s. She went to church one Sunday night. and It was testimony night. She decided to give testimony. She says, I just want you all to know how God has blessed me. She says, I came here two weeks ago, and I didn't have hardly any money. I'm down to my last $20. But God said to me, listen, I want you to give that $20 to the offering. She said, I did it out of obedience to the Lord. But in my mind, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no food in my cupboards. I didn't have food on my table. I just knew that God was going to have to, somehow, some way, he is going to have to provide for my every need. But you know what? I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God anyways. Hallelujah. I am trusting in my heavenly Father for his provisions. Well, she had explained how her neighbor was an atheist and took every opportunity he could to mock her faith. And so that's what he did. He would prod her with things. Well, how, how in the world can you trust God? He's not providing for you very well. You don't have food in your cabinets now. You don't have anything on your table. You don't have any money in the bank. How in the world is, how's your God doing with you now? And so when she had given her last $20, the neighbor decided, you know what? I'm going to put her to the test. I'm, for once and for all, I'm going to shut her up. So he went out and he bought a bunch of groceries, and he went over and stacked them on her front porch. He rang the doorbell and ran away. And she came out, and she saw all the groceries, and she starts yelling, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. God's done it again. He's done it again. He's done it. He did it. He did it again. And so she's in this full-blown dance going on around her front porch. God did it. God did it. Well, her atheist neighbor, got, he was infuriated. He says, this is not working out how I thought. So he goes stomping up on a front porch. He says, I just want you to know, God didn't do anything. I bought those groceries for you. And so she just said, well, God did it, man. I'm telling you, God did it. God did it. He says, listen, I'm telling you, God hasn't done anything. For once in your life, you need to admit that your God doesn't even exist. And I'm telling you, I bought the groceries, and here's the receipt to prove it. And she looked at the receipt, and she turned around, and she thought for a moment, and she says, oh, my word, God did it, God did it, and he made the devil pay for it. <laughs> so that's what God wants to do for you. That's why Jesus is our greatest gift at Christmas. When you fight against the evil one, and you cry out that God did it, God did it, God did it, and Satan, you're going to have to pay because I will not stop rejoicing. I will not stop being grateful to my Heavenly Father, the very one who came to deal with my insecurities, my fears, my self-condemnation, and my discouragement. Because I want to say to every one of you, one day, when you enter into Christ's presence, I believe that Jesus is going to say about you what he said about John. Listen, in spite of your discouragement, in spite of the fact that things didn't always work out the way you thought they were going to work out, man, you guys were my rock stars. You were my rock stars. Let's pray.